Hey everyone, and welcome back to a brand new episode of the 1001 Films Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Gardner, uh, and today I'm going to give you my review of the science fiction film from 2016, Arrival, directed by Denis Villeneuve, uh, starring Amy Adams, Jeremy Renner, and Forrest Whitaker. Um, I'm going to give you my full review and thoughts, and I'm also going to do something a little different. I'm going to tell you about the first time I saw this film because it was really a unique experience for me uh, and for my wife who was there with me when we went to go see this film together. Um, and that is coming up right after the break, so stick around. Alright, so first uh, I have to give a spoiler warning. I mean, obviously, in all my reviews, I review the movie in full. Um, because I don't usually do new release films a lot. They're films that have been out for a while. Uh, and I think it's impossible to review a film like this without talking about spoilers. So if you haven't seen it, uh, you know, pause the episode, go watch the movie, and then come right back and you can hear my thoughts. Um, but it's going to be upfront and honest with you right from the start. Um, this last time watching this movie... Uh, it wrecked me right from the start. Um, I mean, right from the beginning. Um, because, I mean, I had to stop and pause it at the four-minute mark. Movie, I've been watching the movie for four minutes. Um, because I, I was just crying so much. I just got so super emotional um, this time watching it. Um, and it gets more... Uh, emotional for me every time I watch it. Um, I think probably this time was rough because, um, you know, if you've seen the film, it kind of deals a little bit with uh, the chronic illness of a child. Um, and, you know, I th this is the first time I've watched it. Uh, I rewatched it, I think, since um, having uh, a son. Um, and you know, and my wife deals with chronic illness. Um, so I could just relate so much more to the characters in this, in this movie. Um, particularly the main character of Luis played by Amy Adams. Um, and it just, uh, you know, that's, that's the beauty of film, the beauty of filmmaking and, uh, of this art form, because it, it's the same movie that I first saw when it came out you know, five years ago in 2016. Um, it's the same movie. Nothing has changed within the scope of the film. Uh, but for me and my perspective and my bias, uh, really that I bring to it, uh, and my life experiences, um, have changed and it evolves how I interpret and how I see the film, um, over time. And it just hits me different at different times in my life. Um, and you know, and that's, that's just the beauty of film because it it can do that. Um, a movie could hit you a certain way when you're a teenager and it can hit you a complete, completely different way when you're, um, you know, when you're older and you've grown and, and you've gone through, um, different, you know, different life experiences, you know, uh, an animated movie could hit you one way when you're a kid because it's animated and exciting and it's got, you know, fun characters or music or whatever. 
songs that you can sing along to. Uh, but, you know, there's um, a lot of movies like, you know, like The Lion King. My son, he's three years old. Uh, he'll be four here in a couple weeks. He uh, watched he watched The Lion King the other day. Um, and, you know, it hits him different than, you know, that movie hits him different than it hits me. Um, you know, he likes the song, he songs, he likes Simba, he likes, you know, the fact that it's just all talking animals and, you know, that's lots of really bright colors and, um, you know, very detailed animation and, uh, it's just, you know, characters with funny voices and, you know, stuff like that. He likes, um, and that, that's the kind of stuff that appeals to three, four, five, six year old kids. Um, and that's the kind of stuff that, um, you know, drew me to it when I was a kid. Uh, but now that I'm an adult, I see that that movie is more about, you know, um, it's, it's like a Shakespearean drama. Um, you know, it's, it can be, uh, religious in nature, you know, uh, Simba going into the desert and then coming back. And, you know, it's like the, uh, the whole Christ imagery within Simba and the return of the prodigal son and, and all of that, um, is, you know, within that film too. And all of that stuff goes over a, a you know, a four-year-old's head. Um, but me as, as an adult that, you know, has a different background, has more life experience, can experience those things differently. And, um, this, this time, you know, uh, watching Arrival, it just made, it just made me so emotional. The first four minutes and then the last, uh, 10 minutes are, you know, are just super rough for me to get through just because I get so emotional about it. Um, and I'll tell you, and I'll explain a little bit more why when I get to, uh, my, my final thoughts. And when I tell you about how I first, uh, saw the film, my experience first seeing the film. Um, but this time I noticed a lot of the emotion, um, that comes, from this film is really due to the music, um, from the very first moments that the film opens, uh, after the, the opening, uh, studio titles or whatever, it just, it begins and it just draws you right in. It just sets the tone of this kind of, uh, emotional, pensive, um, kind of, um, deeply stirring, um, calming, uh, music, which is, which is totally against type for an alien invasion movie. Yes, this movie is about an alien invasion, but, uh, it is, it is so much more than that. Um, you know, it's, it's so much more than that. And I'll get into that later. Um, and this movie, like I said, the first four minutes and the last 10 minutes, um, it begins and ends with the same music. And that theme is going to play throughout the film, th that things begin and end the same way. And the, the theme of uh, circular thinking and the theme of um, eternity almost in the way, in the uh, in nonlinear uh, experiences of time and and that theme runs throughout, um, this film. And like I said, the music is deeply emotional and pensive and in the middle, 
uh, besides those two beginning and ending, uh, kind of the main theme, uh, of, uh, of the movie, there's, um, you know, hints of the music from Akira, the anime, uh, from 1988. Um, and that's another movie about, um, the, the circular nature of, of life and how it, you know, history repeats itself and, um, you know, the nature of existence and that, you know, that film, um, has extremely deep and similar themes to, um, to this, to Arrival as well. Um, and they kind of do at the very beginning, they kind of do like a bait and switch with the timeline, you know, along that same lines is that you think, um, it's one way, but as the film goes on, you realize that it's the opposite. You think that these, that these scenes, um, and the, of Louise with her daughter, um, the fact that they're all kind of cut together and placed at the beginning of the film, um, and then it moves on. It makes, it makes you think that this takes place before what's about to happen, because that's the way that, uh, movies are traditionally told, um, in that linear narrative, um, you know, stuff that happens earlier in the film generally is, uh, unless there's like a, a title card, um, that says, you know, like 10 years ago or whatever, you know, it's, it's stuff that happens earlier in the film generally happens earlier chronologically. Um, where in this film, it's the opposite. It starts with the end of the chronological story and then uh, goes back to the beginning and then circles back around to um, to the end with Luis and her daughter. Um, and the first time you see the film, you don't realize it. And um, it's not until almost the very end of the film, the last uh, 20 minutes or so, that you realize that um, it's all circular, that it's all, uh, been a flash forward instead of a flashback. It's similar to the season three finale of Lost, where the whole, the whole time you think all these scenes with Jack, you know, looking at these maps and, you know, drinking really heavily with the beard, you think all, all, the whole show up until that point had been flashbacks of the people on the island, but that episode, uh, was a flash forward. Um, and this, it's a, it's similar here in this, in Arrival, in this film. Um, and there's a lot of things I like about this film. Um, just kind of going through my notes here. I like that they, uh, as far as story-wise, I like that the government brings in various types of scientists. Um, you know, they bring in Luis, who's a linguist. Uh, and then they also bring in, um... Jeremy Renner, Jeremy Renner's character, who's a physicist, you know, a lot of times, like in science fiction movies, they just bring in, you know, generic, quote unquote, scientists or researchers, and they don't really specify what kind, you know, what kind of scientists there are, what kind of researchers they are. Um, but I like that they um, brought in people with two kind of opposing viewpoints. Um, and you really get that in that uh, helicopter scene where they first meet each other, where Jeremy Renner's talking about, you know, um, talking about traveling at the speed of light and things like that. And Luis is just like, why don't we just talk to them first before we start throwing math problems at them? And then Forrest Whitaker says, you know, his character says, you know, that's why you're both here. 
uh, is that both approaches are important. You need to be able to communicate, but you also want to get scientific answers out of them. And uh, that made it uh, feel more realistic to me because I think that's what, um, you know, the government and people would actually do to try to understand uh, what's going on when there's um, an alien invasion. Um, and it's kind of, in, in that sense, it's kind of uh, similar to the movie uh, The Martian with Matt Damon that came out around the same time as Arrival, I think just a year or two before, um, where Matt Damon, he played a botanist. You know, they go, they go to Mars and they have all these different types of scientists and they have a, a botanist. You know, if they're trying to colonize Mars, they're going to have to be able to you know, create agriculture and, you know, grow crops so that, you know, people could live there sustainably and eat and not have to, you know, transport food all the way to Mars from Earth. Um, so, uh, so they bring in Matt Damon, who's a botanist. And I think I've, that makes it more realistic. It makes it feel um, more grounded in, in reality. Um, and just going off of that, um, that interaction with Luis, uh, and I can't believe I've, I keep forgetting Jeremy Renner's character's name, but, uh, Amy Adams and Jeremy Renner, they're in the helicopter and they're flying into this base, um, with what they call the shell, which is the, uh, which is this alien spacecraft that has, uh, landed in, you know, in the middle of nowhere in Montana, um, and the tracking shot, I guess it's like a tracking shot, but it's like a helicopter shot where it follows the helicopter over this uh, giant crowd of cars and people like at the f perimeter fence, like trying to get in and get a look at the at the spaceship um, and, you know, it flies through the fog and, you know, you see the giant UFO there and it kind of circles around and it comes around and it lands, uh, among these military tents and vehicles. And it really, it really lets you know the scope and the enormity of, uh, of this occurrence, um, that there's so many people trying to figure out what's going on. Um, you know, that this is a full blown military government operation. It really s sets the, the, the stage for, uh, the setting for, in the setting for the rest of, of the film, the rest of the movie we spend, um, at this base, you know, besides the kind of visions that Louise is having of her daughter and whatnot, the whole movie takes place in this military base. Um, and that tracking shot that's coming in really sets the stage, uh, for the rest of the film. And, um, you know, the design of the UFO, uh, and of the shell, um, obviously has references to Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. Um, it's not perfectly square like the monolith, but it's, um, you know, it's, it's black and it's, you know, the same similar color and texture as the monolith. And, you know, the, it shows up out of nowhere, um, just like at the beginning of 2001 and at the very end of 2001. And, you know, 2001 is, a, is another film, uh, that discusses consciousness and intelligence and, you know, um, the, uh, possibly jumps in, in consciousness of time and, um, you know, what, what does it mean to be sentient and, um, how, how does an alien race communicate with, with humans 
on earth um you know and the themes of you know extraterrestrial intelligence uh, granting humanity and knowledge to facilitate evolution or to usher in a new dawn of human society like all those themes are come from 2001 a space odyssey and all of them are here in this film and none and you know none is more you know references to 2001 are no more obvious than when um louise and uh renner's character reach out and touch the the shell for the first time you know that's that's an uh, an obvious nod to when haywood floyd uh, in his spacesuit, goes to touch the monolith um, on the moon. It's it's uh, like the same shot, only it's in landscape. Where in two thousand one, Floyd's hand and the monolith are the monolith is vertical, and you can see Floyd's hand going to touch the vertical monolith. In this one, it's it's the uh, the view of the spaceship is horizontal, uh, and you see the the hand reaching up to touch it instead of reaching out um to touch it but that that's an obvious nod to stanley kubrick and and 2001 space odyssey um you know and i think it's interesting that they have all this high-tech um equipment and all of this advanced technology and they're going into the spaceship um that changes gravity and atmosphere and air pressure and all of that um, to speak with this alien race and they bring a canary, you know, in a cage, like they're going into, um, you know, the coal mines, like back in the day before they had any kind of like, um, equipment to detect carbon monoxide or anything. They bring a canary, um, into the coal mines. And as long as the canary was alive, it was safe to be in there and to breathe the air. And there was no toxins or anything in the air. Um, but once the canary died, they knew they had to get out or whatever. So I just think it's funny. They have all this super advanced technology, but they still bring a bird in a cage, you know, something that had been used in coal mines dating back, you know, two, 300 years, um, from this point. Um, and I think, uh, now's a good time as any to discuss the performances of the three lead characters. Um, Forrest Whitaker kind of plays the lead, the head military guy that recruits Adams and Renner to both, uh, come and, you know, do their own respective work on, uh, trying to decide why these aliens are here. And Forrest Whitaker, I mean, what, you know, what else can you say about him except that he's, he's always reliable. Um, you know, he always gives a solid performance in everything he's in, um, and, you know, this, this film is no different. Uh, he plays this kind of no-nonsense military leader. He's just trying to do his job. He respects these scientists and what they have to do. And he listens to reason. And uh, he listens to, you know, he defers to the scientists' judgment uh, when it comes to doing what they have to do. But he's also all about getting the job done. You know, that... Um, that kind of mil that strict military like this is this is the mission this is what we have to do let's go do it um and he plays that character uh extremely well uh, and jeremy renner uh the fact that he uh is also like in the avengers and he was in that one jason you know that born uh, mm -hmm. supremacy i think 
was the name of it the born movie he's like an act he's in a lot of action movies and stuff like that but in this film it you know it contrasts well because he plays like this nerdy theoretical physicist um and his performance in this film is great as well but the the best uh performance in this film obviously is amy adams you know she's the lead of the film she uh is probably the best um performer actor or actress working today um that hasn't won an oscar um you know she carries this film all all of the emotional heavy lifting um that is done in this film is done by her um you know she plays this very flat somewhat um emotionless character at the beginning and she throughout the film she kind of um you know she is you know at the beginning she's um she's in this uh kind of like down state and you think it's because she um lost her daughter like her uh her daughter died of this you know this rare disease and she's kind of down because of that but it's you know that's just like her life um up until that point uh has you know hasn't you get the sense that her her life really hasn't gone the way that she has wanted it to um and but throughout the film you know especially in the in the uh, flash forward vision sequences with her daughter you get to see her kind of open up more emotionally and become more of a of a brighter happier person uh despite what's going to happen in her future the death of a child um you know and you know the main arc of the film is is hers you know the movie would not be as good if it you know if her performance uh was not so believable um and kind of going along with that Roger Ebert uh said one time that the more specific a movie becomes the more universally it can be applied so um this film you know while it's is global in scope you know this whole the whole world is trying to figure out why these 12 spaceships have all landed here um and you know it affects everyone worldwide um Denis Villeneuve wisely uh chooses to focus on Luis's journey specifically um that yes this film is global but we don't have scenes with um you know, with China or with, you know, Australia or, you know, Russia or England or what any of these other countries, we don't go there and see what those characters are doing. Everything we experience from other countries, we hear secondhand through Luis's point of view. Um, and the film wisely chooses to, to pinpoint this experience for her and what this experience is, experience is doing to her. Um, and it makes it more universally applicable. You know, if you break it down to, if you break this movie down to its bare bones, it's a movie about a mother's love for her daughter. And that's it. You know, you could, there's a million different ways you could take that kind of story. Um, you know, it more uh, effectively presents the same message um, essentially that Interstellar is trying to to put forward. You know, that love conquers all and is transcendent in that, um, you know, life is worth living, 
despite the hardships and that it's it's worth continuing to fight for and to enjoy in the moment the good moments to just enjoy them rather than you know just wallowing in despair you know this film and interstellar essentially have the same message um but i feel like this this film is more is more believable. It ends more believably than like a fourth dimensional bookcase, uh, you know, at the end of Interstellar. Like that was just so hokey. And but I digress. That's a, a completely different review. Um, but I think Roger Ebert is right that this film really focuses in on um, on Luis, and it makes it more applicable to everyone because everyone has a mother. You know, everyone has a, a mother figure, has some kind of parental figure in their life. Um, whether it be, you know, like their, you know, biological mother or a stepmother or a dad or an uncle that, or, you know, a kind of a mentor, like almost everyone has that kind of relationship in their life. Um, and they can relate to that, you know, uh, or they are the mentor or parent or mother or whatever to someone else. And they can relate in that sense as well. Um, and everyone has experienced some kind of loss, um, you know, death of a child, of a parent, grandparent, of even a pet, or, um, you know, they've gotten fired or, you know, everyone experiences hardships. Um, and the fact that this film focuses on this one character's hardships and this one character's experience, it allows us to, um, kind of bring out those emotions in ourselves and bring out those, uh, experiences, uh, and it allows us to relate to her because we see her going through something similar that we have also gone through. Um, and you know, this, this film does, does that perfectly. Um, it allows us to empathize with the main character, um, in a way that any other art form, um, whether it be a novel or a comic book or painting, or anything, music, um, film allows us to empathize, empathize with the characters, uh, more than any other art form. Um, and this film really, uh, also hones in on something that I've experienced myself, uh, this idea, uh, that your thinking or your perception of the world changes, but based on what language you're using, uh, it's called the Sapir Wharf, uh, hypothesis, I think I'm saying that right, um, that your uh, brain and your thinking can be rewired based on what language you use, because each language has its own grammar rules, its own sentence structure, its own slang and everything, um, you know, its own unique vocabulary. Um, and like I said, I have personal experience with that, um, because I live, I was, I lived in Brazil for two years, uh, and I learned Portuguese and, you know, like I said, the sentence structure is different. Like for example, um, the adjective goes after the noun instead of before. And I know that's, uh, the same in Spanish and, uh, Italian too. I think all the romance languages put the adjective after the noun instead of in English, we put it before. Um, and, you know, I was so immersed and deep into, um, just this society that spoke a completely different language that I would think differently. Um, I would start to think when I would, 
um, when I would think in English, I would start to put the, the adjective after the noun. Or if I would call home and talk to my parents, I would, you know, I spoke with a, with a Brazilian accent because it had been so long since I spoke with, uh, since I spoke English. You know, it was just a seeing, reading, uh, speaking, you know, thinking, writing Portuguese all day, every day. Then I'd call home and talk to my parents or my brothers and, um, you know, I'd have a Portuguese accent and I would put adjectives after nouns. Um, you know, I would have dreams in Portuguese. Um, and it, you know, it really did change the way that I thought and the way that I perceived, um, you know, things around me. Um, so when Luis, uh, starts to see visions of her daughter, you know, like I said, at first we think it's a flashback, but because she is learning this uh, heptapod language and that this language is circular and that it's eternal and um, it uh, makes you perceive time the way that they perceive time, uh, it's really putting that hypothesis to the test, you know, that uh, her brain is rewiring itself so that she is um, experiencing the future simultaneously with the present. Um, so um, I think now is a good time as any. I'll turn the page on my notes here real quick. Uh, now is a good time as any to transition into the, the first time um, I saw this film. Um, so... I was with my wife, like I said before, uh, at a movie theater in Las Vegas. Uh, it's called the Cynodome 12. It's in Henderson. Um, it's just off of Boulder Highway. Um, and it, um, you know, I've mentioned before that I've, you know, I'm a religious person. Um, and seeing this film for the first time was truly a religious experience. Um, because I believe uh, that God knows the end from the beginning, uh, meaning that he experiences and sees time as an eternal round, um, that time for him is a continuous circle instead of uh, linear from start to finish, like how we perceive time. So um, when Luis begins to experience time in that nonlinear way um, at the end of the film, and she is kind of realizing that, oh, Jeremy Renner is going to be my husband and like he's going to be the father of my daughter. And but I'm going to tell him about this disease that I know is going to happen to her. And uh, he's not going to like that. We still chose to have this child and, you know, we're going to get divorced or whatever. And, um, you know, and it, at the at the end, at the very end, you know, they're uh, kind of hugging each other and they're embracing and they're dancing in their, in their house. And, you know, Jeremy Renner asks, do you want to make a baby? And Luis, uh, you know, there's this montage of all these scenes that we've seen before of, uh, her daughter, you know, in the little cowboy outfit or playing in the, in the water or being a little baby and, you know, uh, touching her nose and just spelling her name and everything in that moment when he asks that question, uh, do you want to make a baby? She experiences her whole daughter's life. You know, she uh, experiences the the smiles and the laughter and the tender moments. 
But we also know that it's going to end in tears and heartbreak and disease and death. But she still decides that it's all worth it, that the good outweighs the bad. Um, and, you know, she, she says kind of in this letter or in whatever this voiceover um, to her daughter, she says, despite knowing the journey and where it leads, I embrace it and I welcome every minute of it or every moment of it. And, you know, that is uh, just like a, a deeply emotional and moving and religious experience for me, because that's how, that's how God, that's how I believe that God sees us, that he knows that we're going to have uh, these struggles and these trials and that it's going to be hard, but he also knows that there are going to be, you know, such great moments of happiness and joy and um, just bright, uh, you know, life affirming experiences that it's all worth it. Um, and, you know, like I said before, that's the message of this film that, you know, the hell, uh, a mother's love for her child and that love in general, um, conquers all that it makes, it makes life worth living that seeking that out and those, those moments of love and enjoyment and, um, bright happiness really make all the, the struggles and the trials, they really make it worth it. Um, and so my wife and I are sitting in this theater and, um, I start to cry and, you know, I don't want to show my wife that I'm crying if she's not crying. Cause I, I don't want to get embarrassed. And I know it's kind of silly, you know? Um, but then I see like out of the corner of my eye, like through my tears, I see her wiping away her tears and then I just lose it. You know, I just I'm like, okay, I can't hold back anymore. Like this is like, so it was like so deeply emotional and it was like a connective, a connecting experience for us together as a couple. Um, cause I think at this time my wife was pregnant. We were about to have our first child. Um, and you know, we both had tears just streaming down our face at the end of the film. Um, you know, with that, that same pensive and emotional music that began the film, it just, it just hit me so hard in that moment. And especially this time, now that my son has been born and, you know, now that we know that my wife has, you know, these chronic illnesses, um, it's, it just hit me so much more this time than it uh, had in the past. But it's every time I just, every time I just hear the music, it brings me back. It transports me back into that theater. Um, with that experience with my wife. And it was, it's a, a deeply emotional and connective experience that we had together. And that's really the power of film that when you, especially, especially going to see a film in the theater, I know, um, I know because of COVID theaters have been closed and studios haven't really been releasing a lot of movies. Um, but you have to see movies in the theaters because you cannot, you cannot get the same experience, the same shared experience uh, at home that you can at the theater. You know, when you're in a full theater, when you're, um, when you go through that ritual of getting in the car and driving to the movie theater and buying the ticket and, you know, getting the popcorn and just, even if you don't get it, just smelling the popcorn and hearing the buzz of the crowd and going in 
to the theater and sitting down in your seat and waiting for the movie to start. And then uh, I might just do a whole episode on, on, on this next moment when the house lights go down. Um, that's, that's the moment I wait for. That's one of the happiest moments of my life uh, is when I'm sitting in a movie theater and the crowd is buzzing and the house lights start to go down and it takes, it's just two or three seconds. Uh, and then everyone gets quiet and the room is dark. And then the, the, the images go up on the screen. You cannot replicate that at home. It is impossible. I don't care how good your home theater is. I don't care how good your surround sound is. You cannot, you cannot, you absolutely cannot replicate that experience of that shared experience of sitting in a theater with a room full of strangers and having the, the house lights go down and everyone shuts up, hopefully, and everyone quiets down and you're all there for the exact same reason as to experience this art, these, this light, these images on the screen, um, and the music and the acting and the dialogue and everything that all these different art forms just coalesce and come together in the shared experience, um, that cannot be replicated anywhere else. Uh, that, um, you know, and each person is experiencing the film in their own way. Whenever someone goes to see a film, it's cut with their childhood, with their experiences, with their hardships, with their triumphs and their successes, and they experience it individually. But when you're in a theater, in a room full of strangers, it is a collective experience as well. And that is something I know I keep harping on this, but that is something that cannot re be replicated anywhere else. And this film, Arrival, is a perfect experience of that, uh, with me and my wife both having our own individual experiences, our own emotional religious experiences with this film, but also being able to connect on a deep emotional level together. Um, that is the power of movies. That is the magic of filmmaking. And that is why it, it I do this podcast and I have my blog and I talk about it with my friends and it's, it's that feeling of a deeply emotional connection to art that I think everyone in this world, um, strives to, to, uh, to experience and to, uh, everyone seeks after that kind of, uh, life affirming joy. Um, and I get that from movies. I get that from film and, um, I got that with this film, with the rival more so than any other film I have, I think in my entire life. Um, you know, there's been, uh, exciting movies, exciting movie experiences like the dark Knight. The first time I went to go see D the dark Knight, it was, you know, my very first midnight show back when they used to do midnight showings at midnight. Um, and that, that was one of the greatest movie going experiences of my life. The same when I went to go see uh, Star Wars Episode One, A Phantom Menace, when I was a kid, and the same thing with um, Episode Seven, like I couldn't believe that I was going to a Star Wars movie. Both of those times, like I never thought I'd be able to go to a Star Wars movie in my life. Both time I saw those movies, I never thought I'd be able to go see a Star Wars film uh, when I saw Episode One, and 
when I saw episode seven, I thought the exact same thing. I never thought I'd be able to do this again. Just sit in a theater and have this communal experience over something I love. Um, and, you know, I am going to cry my eyes out the first time I go back to the theaters uh, to see a movie after all this COVID is over. Uh, when those house lights go down, that's that's the moment I live for. Um, and I'm sorry I kind of went on that rant. It's I sh- probably should cut it out and put it in a whole new episode, but I think it just relates so well to this movie and that experience. Um, so uh, I'd like to thank you guys. This has been a very long episode again. I know my last one was super long too on The Godfather. Um, but I I just feel like, you know, this is what I live for. This is my, my joy, my hobby, my passion um, is to talk about film and to and to live it, and to experience it, and it just, it helps me deal with all the BS in life, um, and I hope it helps you do the same, um, thank you guys so much for sticking with me through this very long episode, um, you know, don't forget to listen to my other episodes, and, and tune in, and subscribe, so you can get new episodes every week, um, you know, chat with me on Twitter about film, I'm always welcome to, respond to anyone who messages me on Twitter or at me on Twitter. I'm at SMG Reviews. Um, check out my writings on my blog, 1001filmblog.wordpress.com. Thank you again so much for listening, and I will catch you next time.